In his first epistle to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul described his message as the word of the cross. So central to Paul's gospel was this message of Christ crucified. For Paul, the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross was the saving event. It was the act by which all of the redemptive plans and purposes of God were fulfilled. For Paul, the message of Christianity is Christ crucified. Such that apart from the cross, there is no gospel and there is no salvation. Paul lived and breathed and bled the cross of Jesus Christ. It was the summit of God's redemptive work, the cornerstone of his redemptive foundation. But not everyone saw the same thing that Paul saw when he looked at the cross. Not everyone saw the glory that Paul observed when he thought about the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Not in Paul's day and not in ours. And this is the reality to which Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where he writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want us to focus upon verse 23 and the word which the ESV translates as stumbling block. That's the Greek word scandalon, from which we derive our word scandal. Paul says that the word of the cross, the gospel of Christ crucified, is a scandal, it's an offense. And it is offensive to different people in different ways. For instance, to the Greek Gentiles, the word of the cross did not accord with their wisdom. They could not understand first the humiliation of the incarnation. How or why God would condescend to become man. And even if he were to become man, they especially could not comprehend the crucifixion. That this God-man should suffer the most shameful, horrible, ignominious death ever devised. On the other hand, the word of the cross was offensive to Jews for another reason. Namely, that they had no conception of a suffering and dying Messiah, particularly one who died a cursed death. Because it was written in their law in Deuteronomy 21-23, cursed is anyone who is hanged upon a tree. The Messiah for which the Jews looked was one who was wise and powerful, not weak and powerless, as Jesus appeared to them upon the cross. So for both groups, for Jews and for Gentiles, the cross of Jesus Christ was a scandal. It was an offense 
to their ears. But, says Paul, in every audience to which he preached, there was a third group comprised of representatives from the first two, both Jews and Greeks. And he identifies this third group by a certain all-encompassing characteristic. Namely, they are those who are called. To those who are called, the word of the cross is neither foolishness nor a stumbling block, but is in fact the wisdom and power of God. Why? What is so wise and powerful about the cross? That's the question I hope to address this morning as we look at the death of the Son of God from Mark 15, 21 to 39. And my prayer has been and is this morning that the word of the cross that I preach to you would be to you the wisdom and the power of God. That through the message of Christ crucified this morning, God would call you. That your eyes would be opened, that your mind would be enlightened, that your heart would be awakened such that you see in Jesus' death the most glorious act of redemptive love and wisdom and power this world has ever known. May it please God through the foolishness of what I preach to save those who believe today. I want to begin by meditating upon the suffering of the cross. It's been well noted that none of the gospel writers feels the need to elaborate upon the horrors of crucifixion. All four evangelists, in fact, are content with the most bare of descriptions. In fact, all of them utilize just three words. They crucified him. This is probably owing to two factors. First, the physical sufferings of Christ are not the main point of his death as We will see in a moment. They do not form the essence of his atoning work. But secondly, and more practically, crucifixion was so commonplace in the Roman world that its horrific details needed no elaboration. It would not have been strange for anyone coming into a major city among the Roman provinces to walk past crucified victims along the side of the main road leading into town. Crucifixion was one of the major tools used by the Romans to keep its conquered peoples in subjection. Its effectiveness in deterring crime and rebellion lay in its visibility. It was a public spectacle which loudly and violently declared to all, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. This is what happens when you break Roman law. According to one commentator, James Edwards, quote, Every totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus, and crucifixion was Rome's terror apparatus ad horrendum, or to horrendousness, infamous alike for its infliction of pain and ignominy in the victim, end quote. So because of the people to whom the evangelists wrote, because of their familiarity with crucifixion, they needed no elaboration. 
but we don't have experience with such wanton cruelty. And so it would be to our benefit to dwell for a moment this morning on the horrific nature of crucifixion. Described by the first century B.C. Roman lawyer Cicero as, quote, the most cruel and horrifying punishment. And by the Jewish historian Josephus as, quote, the most wretched of all ways of dying. The victims of crucifixion would first be scourged, as I noted last week. This served to weaken them physically and to hasten their death, which otherwise might take days. They were then forced to carry the crossbeam, which was called the patibulum, which would weigh as much as 100 pounds, through the streets to the site of execution. They would walk in the midst of what was known as the quaternion, which was an execution squad comprised of four soldiers, three behind and one in front. The soldiers in the back would continually scourge the victim in order to drive them forward to keep them from stopping. And the officer in front would carry a wooden placard painted white on which was written in black or red letters the charges for which the victim had been found guilty. The longest route through the city would be chosen in order to maximize exposure and its deterrent effect And when they finally arrived at the site of execution, the victim would be stripped naked, although in Judea they may have been allotted a loincloth because of Jewish sensitivities and laws regarding modesty. And then their outstretched arms would be nailed to the crossbeam at the base of the hand through the median nerve that runs from the wrist to the forearm, which would send screaming pain throughout the length of the arm. The cross piece was then lifted up with the body attached to it and fastened to the upright post which was already sunk into the earth. The feet were fixed to the post with a single nail driven through the two heel bones. A block of wood was fixed about halfway up that vertical post to support the weight of the body. And the inscription of the charges would be nailed above the victim's head. Every breath was agony as inhalation required the pulling up of the body and pressure upon the nails through the wrists and pushing up of the body and pressure upon the nails through the feet. And it would drag the shredded back across the rough and splintered wood. Death came not by blood loss, but by hypovolemic shock, exhaustion, asphyxia, heart failure, or some combination of the three. The entire experience was sadistically designed to maximize the physical agony and the emotional torment. In fact, a word arose in the Latin language to describe the pain that arose from crucifixion. It was the word excruciating, which literally means that which proceeds from the cross. This is what is involved when all four gospel writers summarize in just those three brief words, they crucified him. It's against that backdrop, which would be known to every one of Mark's original readers, that we begin Mark 15, beginning with the last phrase of verse 20. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, 
Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Evidently, Jesus had been so weakened by the sleepless night and the beatings and the trials and especially the scourging that he was unable to make it all the way to the site of the execution carrying his own crossbeam. And so, as they neared the city gate, Jesus must have stumbled under the exhaustion such that it was clear to the soldiers behind him that no amount of scourging would avail to drive him any further. And so they pressed into service a man who was coming in from the fields outside the gate, and they they forced him to pick up Jesus' cross. This man, says Mark, was named Simon, and he was from the city of Cyrene, which is on the northern coast of Africa in modern-day Libya. Mark includes the names of his children, which is interesting given the fact that Mark does not normally give personal names. It indicates to us that his children were known to the early church. In fact, many scholars think that Rufus is the same Rufus who is mentioned by name by Paul in Romans 16.13 as a prominent member of the church at Rome. It could be that Rufus, Simon's son, was among the original recipients of Mark's own gospel. All of this would seem to indicate that this experience which Simon had of walking next to Jesus and carrying his cross had a profound effect upon Simon and his family. All of us are called to carry our crosses and to follow Jesus, but only one man in history literally carried the cross of Christ. I want you to put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Imagine hoisting the blood-stained beam across your shoulders and trudging next to Jesus as he goes to accomplish your salvation. The execution site is identified as Golgotha, an Aramaic word which Mark translates for us as the place of a skull. In Latin, it's known as Calvary. These are the two sites, or there are rather, two sites which are historically identified as Golgotha. The first is known as Gordon's Calvary. If you've ever been to Israel, you probably visited both of these sites. Gordon's Calvary is near the Garden Tomb, and the second is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is near the Old City, just to the north, and is probably the correct location. When they arrived at Golgotha, Mark says, they, he doesn't say who they are, but they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. Now, myrrh has certain narcotic properties, and when it's mixed with wine, it acts as a kind of anesthetic. So the point is, in offering this to Jesus, to dull his senses, to numb the pain, maybe even to put him in some kind of semi-conscious state. In other words, it was an act of mercy before they nailed his hands and his feet. Now, who, we might ask, would offer to Jesus an act of mercy? Certainly not the Roman soldiers who have spent the previous hours torturing him. And so, according to Jewish tradition, it was 
the women of Jerusalem who did so. And it was, in fact, their common practice. In obedience to Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7, which says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. These women would bring this concoction to the victims of crucifixion as a sort of ministry of mercy. But Mark tells us that Jesus refused to drink it. He was determined to face his impending sufferings in faith with a clear head rather than in a drug-induced stupor. So we can proceed through the remaining verses of this text with an understanding that Jesus felt every ounce of the physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering which was coming to him. Physical suffering, in fact, accounts for only half of the torment of crucifixion. It was also designed to utterly humiliate its victim. Everything from the parade through the crowded streets to the public nakedness to the fact that the victims were crucified on an elevated location near high traffic areas for maximum exposure served to increase the shame experienced by the crucified victim and its corresponding effect in deterring the masses from the same crimes. According to the first century Roman lawyer by the name of Quintilian, quote, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by fear, end quote. That's the way Romans thought. That's the way they maintained control among their provinces. It is impossible to overstate the emotional trauma that was experienced by the victims of crucifixion. Of course, the wine mixed with myrrh would have blunted that emotional trauma had Jesus taken it, but he didn't. And it is this shame, this emotional trauma experienced by Jesus which Mark highlights in verses 24 to 32. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I want to point out four aspects of the humiliation endured by Christ in those hours. Number one, there was the shame of his nakedness. This is evident from verse 24 in the fact that the Roman soldiers who executed him then gambled for his garments at his feet. It's interesting that this precise event was prophesied by David more than a thousand years before they actually took place. In Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, 
For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Now again, we don't know if Jesus was completely naked. We do know that ordinarily the victims of crucifixion were. And there's no historical evidence to suggest that things were any different in Judea except that the Jews were particularly sensitive about public modesty. And I want to say that if that thought makes you uncomfortable, imagine the shame it induced in Jesus. His clothes were removed. The soldiers cast lots to see who got to keep the dead guy's garments. And furthermore, Psalm 22 indicates they stare and they gloat over me. I mean, the thought is, is horrid. Second, there was the shame of the charges laid against him. The inscription nailed above his head. The king of the Jews had been written by Pilate on a placard. It had been carried before Jesus by the officer through the streets of Jerusalem. It was affixed over his head to the vertical beam of the cross. Now, of course, the charge was strictly true in and of itself. Jesus was and is the king of the Jews. But at the time, it would have appeared to all who witnessed it as, as farcical, absurd. Just like when the bruised and bloody Jesus had worn the purple robe and worn the crown of thorns and held the scepter made from the reed. Everyone who walked by and read that inscription would have thought, and not a few, would have said, this is the king of the Jews, and they would have laughed him to scorn. Thirdly, there's the shame of his companions. Mark says he was crucified between two robbers. The Greek word there is leistos, which actually suggests not so much theft as it does rebellion and insurrection. In other words, Barabbas, the guy who was set free in place of Jesus in last week's text, probably would have been crucified right in the middle of these two compatriots who had likely been arrested in the same insurrection. This shows that in the eyes of Rome, Jesus was no different than the political terrorists who were willing to murder for their particular political ideology. And then finally, there was the shame of the crowd including the chief priests and the scribes. Mark says that those passing by on the road below, Jesus shouted him, shouted it at, at him. Literally, they blasphemed him and said that if he truly possessed the miraculous power to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, then surely he had the power to get himself down from the cross. The chief priests and the scribes said to one another in mockery, he saved others. But he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and that we may believe. Even those who were crucified beside him joined in the mockery. That is until one of them was suddenly and powerfully converted. Luke tells us in Luke 23, 29, one of the criminals who were hanged Railed at him, saying, 
Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Stunningly, this scene was once again prophesied with explicit precision 1,000 years earlier by David in Psalm 22 speaking the words of Christ before him, David writes, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. A worm and not a man is a description of the way Jesus felt upon the cross. Crucifixion was designed to strip away every semblance of human dignity from the victim and make them feel emotionally disintegrated, devoid of personhood, just a piece of flesh to be butchered and gawked at. So far, we've meditated upon the physical sufferings of Christ as well as the emotional sufferings of Christ. But those pale in comparison to the spiritual sufferings experienced when the hour of darkness came, when the Father removed His face from the Son whom He loved, and when the wrath of Almighty God was poured out upon the substitute. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. In verses 33 to 36, we arrive at the very heart of the atonement. This is where it happened. This is where the sins of the world were placed upon Christ. This is where the Father turned away and separated himself from the Son. This is where Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. The greatest suffering endured by the Son of God came not when the scourge ripped his flesh, nor when the nails pierced his body. It came when sin pierced his soul and the wrath of God ripped out his heart. Mark writes that a supernatural darkness descended upon the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That is from noon to 3 p.m. This is not a natural phenomenon. There are no solar eclipses around the time of Passover, and there are, these are no mere storm clouds. Although either one of those phenomena would have fit the imagery of this event fairly well. Rather, I think the meaning 
of this event is to be found in two Old Testament passages. The first in Amos 8.9 and the second in Exodus 10.21. Amos 8.9 speaks of God's judgment on the great day of the Lord. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. In Exodus 10.21, the ninth plague of Egypt is recorded, the plague just prior to the slaying of the Passover lamb. And in this plague, darkness covered the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. In other words, this supernatural darkness which God brought upon Israel from noon to 3 p.m. was a sign that his judgment was being poured out upon Jesus. And it's at this point, I believe, that the sins of his people were imputed to the righteous and holy Son of God. Isaiah 53.6 points to this transaction. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He became sin. The Holy One became sin and this is where it happened. Wave after wave of vileness and wretchedness and evil and depravity flooded the soul of the Son of Man. There is no polite way to describe what transpired that day, that hour. So I'm going to put it in the most impolite way that I could find. It comes from Ray Stedman, longtime pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California. And I want you to listen to what he wrote. He said, I don't think it's possible for any one of us to even remotely understand the agony that wrung this tremendous cry from the lips of Jesus. If you can imagine a beautiful young girl, an innocent virgin, being raped by an ugly, foul, rapacious man, And the horror that she would feel in that moment, you aren't even in the range of what was going through the soul of Jesus when he was made sin for us. Horrific defilement entered and engulfed the soul of Jesus, which to that point had known no sin. But it was not over. When Jesus became sin, He also became the object of God's ferocious and holy wrath against sin. The fierce anger of Almighty God fell upon Jesus with unrelenting force. In those three hours of darkness, Jesus endured an infinite measure of hell. 
utterly forsaken, utterly wretched, utterly accursed, and utterly alone. William Lane remarks that crucifixions were marked by screams of rage and pain, wild curses and shouts of indescribable despair by the unfortunate victim. Jesus, on the other hand, remained silent until the ninth hour came and he screamed out of the utter forsakenness that he was experiencing. The words once again come from the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. In that midday darkness, Jesus screamed out in God-forsaken misery. This is the zenith of Christ's sufferings. This is the heart of the atonement. And this is where our salvation was accomplished. The righteous one became unrighteousness in order that unrighteous ones might become righteous. The blessed one was cursed in order that the accursed ones might be blessed. The heavenly son went through hell in order that sons of hell might enter into heaven. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God in order that we, the children of wrath, might become the sons of God. This is the transaction that secured our redemption. And it's almost too holy to look at. Those who were standing by heard Jesus' cry of dereliction and they thought that he was calling out to Elijah for rescue. One, maybe a soldier that was somewhat familiar with Jewish folklore, ran over and he filled a sponge with sour wine, which was commonly used by Roman soldiers as a stimulant. And he put it on a reed and he lifted it up to Jesus to drink. This was not an act of mercy, it was an act of curiosity. He was hoping to see a miracle and he didn't want Jesus passing out before it happened. Of course, no miracle came. At least Elijah did not come to rescue Jesus from the suffering of the cross. But that's not to say that there was no miracle. This entire scene is a miracle of divine grace. Infinitely surpassing every healing, every exorcism, every resurrection that Jesus ever performed. By enduring these sufferings, physical, emotional, and spiritual, to the end, draining the cup of God's wrath until it was empty, Jesus accomplished the salvation of the people whom he loves. And that is the theme of the last three verses. What was accomplished by all these sufferings of Christ? Mark points to two accomplishments of Christ's death upon the cross. Verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed 
his last. Literally, he breathed out, he expired. That last breath left his lungs and no more was inhaled. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark emphasizes two accomplishments of Christ's death. Number one, Christ's death accomplished the reconciliation of God and man. This is dramatically illustrated in the tearing of the temple curtain. The curtain was that massive veil which separated the holy place in which was the golden altar of incense and the golden table of showbread and the golden lampstand separated that holy place from the holy of holies wherein in former days was the ark of the covenant and the Shekinah glory, the manifest glory of God. This curtain was erected by divine command and it symbolized a separation that existed between the holy God and a sinful people. And only once a year on the day of atonement, only one Israelite, the high priest of Israel, could enter within that veil and then only with the blood of a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was not effectual to remove sins because they had to keep coming year after year with new blood. Proving that the blood of bulls and goats are ineffective in the removal of sin and the reconciling of God to man. But this Passover, when Christ died on this day of atonement, the blood of Jesus was infinitely effectual in the removal of sin. And there now exists no sin and therefore no wrath and therefore no enmity and therefore no separation between God and those for whom Christ died. Therefore, there is no longer any need for a veil of separation. The rift between God and man has been healed by the death of Jesus Christ. And now God and man are reconciled through faith in Jesus Hebrews 10.19, you remember this as we prepare to, to approach the Lord's table this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Beloved, you can go to God boldly and confidently through the blood of Jesus. It matters not what sin, what guilt, what shame you carry with you, you can approach the living and holy God with confidence because Christ died and the veil was torn and the rift between God and man is no more. Secondly, Mark emphasizes that Christ's death accomplished a revelation of the Son of God to man. 
the beginning of this sermon, I quoted from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which reads that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are perishing, to those like the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the crowds of Jews, the Roman soldiers, they look at the cross and they see foolishness. They see an offense. They see a scandal. They see a stumbling block. And therefore they mock and they revile and they blaspheme and they ignore and they reject. But there are some, Paul identifies them as those who are called, who look at the cross of Jesus Christ and they see in that cross the wisdom and power of God unto salvation. So it begs a question, what does it mean to be called? To be called refers to the sovereign act of God which enlightens eyes that were blind to the glory of God and reveals in the cross of Christ the salvation that is available for sinners. To be called is the sovereign act of God that awakens hearts that were dead in trespasses and sins, dead to the glory of God, and suddenly the one who has been called sees in the cross the wisdom and the power of God to save not just sinners, but to save them. And they are irresistibly drawn to that cross. They are irresistibly drawn to the Son of God who suffered on that cross and rose again from the dead. They see their sin. They see their misery. They see their judgment. They see God's provision in the cross. And they see in that cross wisdom, power, redemption, sanctification. And knowing their sin, they want nothing else but to embrace this Jesus with all of their faith, with all of their hope, and with all of their life. And they are irresistibly, effectually, irrevocably drawn to Christ. They call out to him, and he saves them. It is everything to be called to this Jesus who died on the cross. In the cross, the Son of God is revealed for who he really is, namely the wisdom and power of God unto salvation. And the thief saw it. When he was nailed to that cross besides Jesus, he's hurling abuse at Jesus just like everyone else. But something happened. Something happened and suddenly, beside him on that cross, he doesn't see another criminal, a pretender to the throne, a pretender to the messianic claims. He sees wisdom and power and salvation. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The centurion who oversaw the execution of Jesus, who oversaw his scourging, his beating, his mockery, who led him through the streets of Jerusalem, who saw him nailed to that cross, who gambled for his clothing, 
Something happened when he saw Jesus die. He looked up at the cross and suddenly no longer did he see the execution instrument of a criminal. He saw wisdom and power and salvation. And he said, truly this man is the son of God. What happened? He was called. Have you been called? What do you see when you look at the cross? What do you see when you look at the crucified Jesus hanging on the cross, utterly forsaken by God? What do you see? Because if you see something irrelevant, you have not yet been called. If you see something foolish, you have not yet been called. If you see something that offends your religious pride and sensibilities, you have not yet been called. But if you see wisdom and power and hope and grace and love and redemption, brother, you've been called into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Have you been called? Is God calling you now? It's what I prayed for. When I open up sermons with prayers, those are not empty words. Those are not, that's not just a way to get into the sermon. I'm actually asking God in faith that he would do what I'm pleading with him to do. And I pled with him this morning that he would call you. Has he? If so, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to call out to him. Like the thief on the cross who looked at Jesus. And said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When God calls you, you will call out to Christ. And you will hear him say, you will be with me in paradise.